Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley and I am joined today by Mr. Daniel Jalkut. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I guess it's a few hours earlier here, so it's a good afternoon for me, and I guess getting into good evening for you. You are correct. It is, it is very much the evening. It is dark outside now. It is dark. Okay. So, Mr. Mr. Jalkut, why don't you tell our listeners um, what you like to be known for? I would like to be known for bringing great accord to all people of, of the earth. <laughs> Um, Do you know what's actually quite interesting? I have to stop you just there. Right, Next week's episode um, has been pre-recorded, and it is with John Roderick of The Long Winters. Oh, wonderful. And basically, I won't spoil it, but it's, <laughs> it, John basically said the same thing, just with a, a lot more gusto, so people can look out for that next week. Oh, good. And I'm glad that I, I'm glad you, you know, have mentioned that it's been pre-recorded so I can't be accused, as usual, of merely trying to be a cheap John Roderick knockoff. Well, now he is what will appear to be a Daniel Jalkut <laughs> knockoff, so that you at least have that. Well, we have similar ambitions, I guess, and I have uh, listened quite a bit to his show, so maybe some, maybe some of his... Um, worldview is is sinking in but uh i guess taking a step back and giving your listeners an idea of what i maybe more what i actually am to some extent known for um i am a pretty darn good mac programmer who has been uh working in the mac community since uh i started at apple in 1996 or so working on classic mac stuff and uh, worked inside Apple until 2002, and since 2002, that's really when I really got involved in the outside of Apple community, um, started gradually getting more connected with my fellow uh, you know, developers, uh, started a blog, um, got, some, got to some level of popularity, the Red Sweater blog that went with my Red Sweater software company, uh, Web Presence. And it was kind of a funny backwards thing because um, I started the company, Red Sweater, and I sort of got more well-known as a blogger than for making any software that people really used. Um, So I had this Red Sweater software site, which was really primarily a, um, uh, you know, I had a few little apps up there, but it was primarily the spot where my blog lived. And then over time, luckily, I um, ended up with some more successful products. Uh, folks who have been around a while may remember that um, Brent Simmons of NetNewsWire fame uh, originally was the developer of a blog editor called MarsEdit. And uh, a few years ago, I, I acquired MarsEdit from the company he was working for. And it's been real fun. I've just uh, so I guess these days I'm probably best known as the Mars Edit guy. Um, also run a, a podcast of my own with my friend Manton Reese called Core Intuition. And you know, hang around on Twitter, try to be uh, uh, try to be as funny and uh, provocative as I can while not completely overwhelming everybody. And uh, as I said, just sort of loosely aiming towards imitation John Roderick status. That is a, a very great and concise overview. I think of all of the shows, of all 27 shows, and I think 24 or 25 different guests, I don't think anybody has eloquently so well explained 
<laughs> what they do and what they're known for. I mean, four minutes and we know all we need to know. I guess we can end now, right? We can wrap this up. Let's talk about John Roderick. <laughs> so I'm, I would like to t- turn to you for just a few moments, if we may. Yes. So your um, story is quite well known, as you mentioned, because you kind of did things a strange way around, like from what seems to be the norm these days. You worked for Apple, yes. a massive company, which for a lot of developers is a dream and goal. You did that first. That's right. You then left and went to college to study music. You have done your research, my friend. I, 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 uh, Sean Blanc did all the research for me. I just read your interview that you did with him. Oh, wonderful. Yes, yes. The 2008 interview. Usually he basically told me, you need to read, just read this and you'll get a lot of what you need to know, which is great because he saved a lot of work for me. Good advice. So you did, and then you moved into the indie space after that and set up Red Sweater. And um, I just find that very interesting. I think that that's why that your story is maybe known a little more than some others because it's notable in in that regard. I guess. Uh, I think that I think there's some truth to that. Uh, it it's sort of. Um, I think one thing that's nice about my story, if I may be so bold, is to say is that it sort of. In- it includes the trajectory that a lot of people would like to see themselves taking if they're like in a in a um, real you know big company in a corporate job. They have this ambition to do something on their own, um, and you can sort of look at the trajectory I've taken. And I like I like about my story so far that you can if you if you have the right attitude and you're interested in doing the same thing, you can look at my story and say. Well, that doesn't seem that hard, you know. Yeah. You just you just do, do it one step at a time. Sure, it took a long time. Um, there are a lot of bumps in the road. You need to find ways to give yourself some security. Like I had, uh, you know, consulting I was doing for a few years. Um, the other thing that's uh, but the, the other thing I think though that maybe at, at least it jumps out for me about my own story, my own professional story, is it's all sort of based in this incredible luck I had very early on. And as you said, um, a lot of people, you know, whether they're programmers or designers or, uh, you know, even salespeople, um, if they're in like this kind of Apple oriented, you know, realm, it is a kind of a dream to work at Apple and to be inside the so-called mothership and, see how all that goes down. And I had a very uh, self-aware sense from the beginning that it was unusual and that I was lucky that I had like sort of skipped a step. Um, you know, it was combination of, you know, combination of things, including the fact that I grew up um, about a 45 minute drive from Apple's headquarters. But uh just kind of getting in there and getting lucky enough to talk to the right people and show the right people that I had some skills that could be developed and then finding people at Apple who were generous enough to help me develop those skills and getting all of that taken care of, so to speak, um, very young. You know, I started at Apple, my, actually my first like contract job at Apple, I was 18. Um, and I went, I was hired uh, full time at Apple when I was 20 and wow. I was out of there by um, 27. So uh, I remember feeling strongly kind of, kind of like this, the luck of um, kind of like being able to check off that long time ambition 
um, frees you up to go after something else. Like, uh, I think a lot of people struggle with this. I know other um, indie developers who are sort of kind of pulled in two directions. There's the, I want to be a successful, completely independent, you know, uh, plan my own path through this world person. But I also want to go work at Apple or I want to go work at Microsoft or I want to go work at some big company that makes a huge impact. And uh, that having sort of had that big company thing out of the way, I think is sort of a lucky break. Uh, not only did it help me, obviously, to have some credibility, but um, sort of able to take that pressure off, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's good to have the experience and to have it early probably help prepare you for for a bunch of things. So I'm wondering, you know, because obviously you are a Mac developer now, but you have worked for Apple. I mean, has that experience sort of peppered anything or changed any perception you have on them that potentially another developer might not have? Like working inside the company, I mean, admittedly it was a different company to where we are now and we're going to talk a bit about that um, later on in the show but being you know in the development community having worked for apple i mean does it give you any different sort of insight or just you know any different thought processes um my, my i would jump to uh the assumption that i have probably more empathy with apple than most developers while at the same time also being possibly you know, more critical of Apple than most developers. It kind of makes sense. I mean, because you understand the when when things are going when things are tough or things maybe are not going exactly as you know people expect they should be. You can probably empathize. Oh my word, empathize. There we go. I know I get there in the end with some of the struggles that go into to creating that sort of stuff because you've seen it firsthand. But at the same time, if you see something that you don't agree with or something that you know should be done better, you have first-hand experience at seeing that, right? That's right. And, you know, the closest comparison I can think of, uh, I, I came up with this in like a Twitter quip at, at one point, was I compare my relationship with Apple in some sense to my nationality because I think most people can relate to that kind of conflict of you know, really sort of intrinsically loving and respecting and adhering to the values of the culture and the country that you were raised in while just being infuriated by some of the shortcomings that are in inevitably there. And I think being sort you know, it's like as an American, I am, you know, uh, you know, believe me, I know lots of people in the world have plenty of criticisms for America, but as an American, I think it's, you know, it's, it's possibly more infuriating to me when I see things my country does that I don't agree with. And that's very similar to how I feel about Apple in the sense that I want Apple to be the greatest company, you know, in the world. Um, and I am, I am sort of, you know, <laughs> this exactly, exactly the kind of thing that makes people judge like Apple so-called fanboys. But that's my culture. That's my people. You know, I, it's like I came from that company, and a lot of people would probably um, dismiss being so sort of um, melodramatic about it, or so so 
you know, it, it, I, I could imagine people saying, it's just a company, dude. Like, come on, like, you know, <laughs> use the tools that are available to you. But no, it's not just a company to me. It is, you know, like I said, I, I went there so young. I had so many, so, so many of the lessons I learned about software, about, you know, even just working with people in general came from that company. So that's basically the um, the comparison that comes to mind is it's really more than a company for me. And I, for the time being, I want it to be the best it can possibly be. I guess at some point, if it changes enough or if I feel like it's really betrayed how I feel the company should be, then I might sort of like become disillusioned. But I'm still, I'm still gung-ho about Apple, you know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Apple and... um in spite of seeing things that they do sometimes where I just feel like, Oh man, this, this is really not helping, you know? Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that you have it that, that way around, right? It's, it's just, it's, it just gives you an uh, added, some added fault that you're able to impart. And I'm sure I have been in the past helped you make decisions and probably some of the, your colleagues around you, you know, other developers and stuff. I'm sure it's been useful to everyone to have someone with your sort of, sort of experience in the community, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. I think, um, the, the, if I've done anything for the other, um, you know, other developers in the community that's directly related to this, it might just be, um, uh, like a tiny, a tiny bit less restraint when it comes to voicing concerns about some of this stuff. Like, it, not to say that any of my voicing of the concern has ever actually led to much, but you know, there was it was a opportunity to at least get opinions out there about, for example, what kinds of impacts the um, the Mac App Store sandboxing was going to have, uh, and. I think sometimes that's just been not really on purpose. Not like I was going out, like I'm the voice of the developers, but like I have a strong opinion about this. And like I know some other Mac developers, for example, who have a strong opinion who would maybe stay quiet because they don't want to ruffle any feathers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that might be smart for me to do more more of that self, uh, you know, self censoring. But, um, that's uh, something about. I think I can. I think I can actually credit Apple with that sort of sense of no. We need to like examine this, and we need to understand this, and appreciate that it, we're doing the right thing uh, before we actually do it. So let's uh, let's take a look at uh, a little bit more of your computing, your programming history, um, and this is a uh, a question from friend of the show, Mister Dalton Caldwell um, of App.net, founder of App.net, and he uh, would like to be interested to hear what the Bay Area um, or tech computing scene was like and how that helped influence some of the decisions and choices that you made. Um, you then on on App.net said that you thought it'd be a great idea and started talking about BBSs in the sixth grade, which means nothing to me, really. But all I know is it started a huge conversation <laughs> on App.net <laughs> with a lots and lots of things that I don't understand. Um, okay, but, so you are, you are of a post-BBS generation, or you just happened not to be uh, exposed to that. I am post that generation. 
Right. Okay. So you probably um, have heard. You, you know what a modem is, though. Yeah. I, I, I. Yeah. I used. I used modems, but I did not use a BB, any BBS boards or anything like that. Um, yeah. And, so it, I am it, aware it, of them, but I don't know very much yeah. about them. So just in case anybody listening doesn't know on a very high level what a BBS is, it's short for bulletin board system. And in a nutshell, it is like any forum that you would find on the web today. Um, but to visit and read and post on the forum, you would have to be connected to the computer on which that forum was hosted through a modem, direct modem connection. Uh, so you're, you're sitting at home and you want to go check out the... Uh, you know, the 70 decibels uh, forum and you call up the phone number with your computer and it connects up and you log in and you say, hmm, any new messages? Okay, cool. Read them, respond to them, hang up. Now the next person who possibly has been waiting patiently as their modem tries to call the bulletin board system and receives a busy signal is uh, is able to call up and uh, so you can sort of get the sense that this was a way for people to kind of form communities before the before the internet was widespread uh, before access to the internet was widespread among you know everyday people and when computers you know the fundamental technology for connecting a home computer to any network was uh, over your home telephone line. And uh, so what happened was actually a pretty vibrant scene of um, BBSs popped up all around the world. But in particular, I think we had one of the stronger and more um, experimental in some some respects BBS scenes in the San Francisco Bay Area and in the Santa Cruz area in particular where I grew up. Uh, there was quite a lot of stuff going on. So... Um, it was just it was interesting, you know. From the sixth grade, in other words, I had this experience in sixth grade for me would be 1986. So starting in 1986, as a 12 year old boy, I had this experience of starting to get to know other kids who had stumbled into this from you know across town, maybe far enough across town that I would have never met them. They don't they didn't go to my school. Um, it started to do that internet-like thing of pulling computer nerds closer together than geography would have normally allowed for. So, um, you know, there were things like BBS-related parties where everybody who went to a particular, who, who would log into a particular BBS would show up at a party at somebody's house one particular day and everybody says, you know, just like you do today, oh, that's the person I knew on Twitter and I never got to meet them in real life until just today. And you would say, oh, that's that person who, you know, calls himself the Dark Sphinx. <laughs> and <laughs> now I know who that is. Um, and that was really the basis for, I think, um, you know, the social the social aspect of my... Um, relationship with technology with with you know the, the internet today started way back then when i was 12 on those bbs's and how do you think that those experiences um or do you think that they helped shape your life and you know in what way uh in particular you know i said that i met a lot of other kids 
some of my some of my best friends um, from growing up were involved in this PBS culture. In fact, you know, uh, there's there's a a few folks who work at Apple to this day because uh, you can you can sort of trace that fact back to us all meeting on BBSs in Santa Cruz and, you know, as 12 year old boys, um, just cause you know, things happened and so-and-so knew somebody and somebody knew somebody. And so they got hired and then it all goes back to this culture starting in Santa Cruz in the, the, um, the eighties, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Um, but what else, well, the other thing that happened that was very significant, I think in the sense of, um, maybe making me a little bit like prematurely qualified for jobs, um, things like that was I was spending a lot of time like, uh, you know, talking with people who were above my level of sort of intellect for my age. So, yeah. uh, there was a lot of, you know, the, these BBSs, a lot of them had like any topic you could imagine people were talking about. So it wasn't quite like, you know, going to a forum online that's just dedicated to like WordPress issues. It was more like here is this world of uh, potential topics we could talk about. Uh, so, you know, I had political debates. I had discussions about like health and fitness, like, you know, should you take vitamins or shouldn't you? And all of these things are going on starting from when I'm uh, 12 years old. And I think uh, in the same way that many young kids today can get sort of um, involved with, you know, uh, higher intellect things online, you know, there's these, there's got just like a, you know, a recent example that is of course on everybody's mind is Aaron Swartz, who was involved with incredibly intellectual things as like a similarly, similarly as like a, you know, preteen, um, and because of this exposure to people, I think, who had, who had something to offer him as he was uh, developing that. So I think that's the way that it helped me, not to, this, not, not to compare myself to Aaron, but it helped me in the sense that it gave me an outlet and a venue to sort of develop skills that were beyond the, the age group that I was naturally fit into. Um, what do you think these days is the analog for that? For, for the um, BBS system, I, what what do we have now that can help prepare, you know, or get young people into these sorts of things? Is it social networks like Twitter, Facebook, App dot net, or is it, or is it is it forums? Like, where do you think that that's coming from now? Even if it still exists in this way, I I I have a feeling that mm, it's hard for me to kind of pick out something that's well known that fit that completely fulfills that because, like I said, it was kind of. Um, the, the the things that made it special were sort of that it was a small enough scope that you could kind of get to know everybody um, on a first name basis within the community, but it was also um, so open it open in terms of what the topics were. You know, not everybody who connected to these BBSs were uh, even computer nerds. Some of them were. Um, like the kids of computer nerds who maybe their dad like showed them how to connect to the BBS or um, even even like I remember there being some like older folks on there whose whose children had 
hooked them up through their it's similar to the way people connect to the internet today but it was such a small group that you could have this uh, you could have more of an expectation of um kind of like a wide wide reaching intellectual discussions and i don't know exactly where you go for that except to try to um you know select for the people that you like and can have good discussions with on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, and I think, I think um, it's more now on a, on a, on a niche basis. Like what is the specific thing you want to get better at? If you want to get better at talking about philosophy, I'm sure you can go out and find, um, there's probably like a stack exchange at this point for talking smartly about philosophy and getting voted up for that. And I could I could see some young kid who had a interest in philosophy, kind of sharpening those skills in some uh, environment like that. You see, I think it's it's not so much that there's one place or system that you use now, but there are many different systems and ways of communicating with people in your niches. Like, for example, you know, I live in the United Kingdom. Um, and all of all of the hosts, practically, um, at least all of the the people that I do shows with and have done shows with, bar like one or two exceptions, live in the United States or on that side of the world. And I have met with them and created a working and fr- relationship and friendship via think, the communication systems like Twitter, mainly Twitter. You know, so yeah. there is that is still there, but as you say, the difference now is, I guess, that's where I went for it, but I, I could have gone somewhere else, or you know, as you say, if somebody wants to learn about philosophy, there's I'm sure there's philosophy forums, and there, are, as you say, probably like stack exchanges and things like that. But it's not that there's one system anymore at which you would go and and expect to get all this content or try and find it. There are many, many corners of the internet, silos, and systems at which you can find this information. Yes, absolutely. But I, I do think um, that they all these different little, the little areas, I think that the challenge now is that you have to find where the specific little area is that's actually going to help you. But when I say that out loud, I'm reminded that, you know, I found some great BBSs when I was a kid and they turned out to have great cultures and people who I genuinely enjoyed talking with. And then there were a lot of crap BBSs that... Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to connect to. They were the equivalents of, you know, spam-based, you know, websites that you wouldn't want to connect to. Um, so it's, maybe it's not so much different. Maybe it's really just the scale has gotten so big now, and you have to find a way to zero in on, you know, the stuff that really works for you. When I was a when I was a kid, uh, even though. When I started calling BBSs, connecting to BBSs, even though that was a huge eye-opener for me, I was still limited somewhat in that. For example, uh, I lived in Santa Cruz, California, and there were a lot of, of other BBSs um, just you know 40 miles away in uh, San Jose, but it was a toll call on the telephone. So you would never, as a rule... You know, as a 12-year-old kid, you would never connect to these BBSs that you had to pay a toll, uh, a telephone toll on. Um, and then that obviously has completely opened up now. There's no reason somebody, like you said, in the UK can't record a live podcast with somebody in 
Boston, Massachusetts, uh, or run a virtual business with somebody or, you know, participate in a stack exchange. And I think that's, uh, it's got to be on the whole, everything on the internet taken together has got to be a more fertile ground for, you know, feeding somebody's intellect and social development. But um, it's easy, I think, also to think, oh, it's just, there's so many pitfalls to fall into. You can just fall into the, you know, um, the, the, the less reputable ways of, mm. of uh, participating in this community, you know, in the, in the, in the global network. Indeed. Let, should we talk a bit more about Red Sweater Software? Sure. So you founded Red Sweater in, in the year 2000. Is it, yes, that's approximately right. This is what I have learned from, from reading your interview with Sean. <laughs> I, and, I was looking at it recently and I, uh, I was looking at my, hit, my uh, old files and I discovered that I actually started, filed uh, the paperwork in San Francisco, California in late 1999, like in, right. maybe in December. So I think I've been averaging... Averaging up, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's something that only folks who listen to this podcast will know. It'll be the secret code. Yeah, that's how you know. So in future, if people say you founded it in 2000, then you'll right. know that they've not listened to this episode. And exactly. then shame on them. Indeed. So you had very different goals and ambitions for the company to where you are now. Could you tell us a little bit about what your original goal was with Red Sweater? What, what was the company set out to do? Oh, well, when I first started the company, to give you an idea of how aimless I was with it, I started it with three, you know, I don't know if they do this in the UK, but in, in the US, um, if you're an individual and you start a company, you declare the names of your company or the name of your company. Um, if you're just a small timer, you can do it as something called a DBA, which is a doing business as, uh, and you, yeah. you file, you file with your town and um, and then from that point on, you have the legal right to use that name as if it were your own. Um, so I filed three DBAs on the same day because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I filed Red Sweater Software, Red Sweater Press, and Red Sweater Records. So, <laughs> so you were looking to create software and books and music. Yeah, that's all. just a mo- few modest goals. You know? <laughs> Basically, you wanted to control every industry. I wanted to. Yeah, I, sh- I, I should have had the. Um, I should have had the forethought to just call it Red Sweater because if I had my if I had my way now and it wasn't like an annoying legal process, I would probably just call it Red Sweater and not have the. the to me, the sort of like a- appendage of software is kind of like a sign of naiveness and that makes sense because i was so naive when i started the company um but you know like uh, there was a time in in my tenure at apple when apple sort of famously at at the moment changed from apple computer to just apple yeah and it makes sense why did it have to be apple computer it doesn't there is uh, a there is like a i mean at least this is maybe my um, perception. The fact that you have software in the name makes the company sound like it has a history. Because mm. I, I don't really know if you see that very much anymore. Mm-hmm. That, that companies... I mean, that definitely used to be the case more than than it is now. That companies, technology companies, would delineate what it was that they did. Like Apple right. Computer, you know? 
Mm-hmm. It, there was there was seemed to be more of that than there is now. So it kind of gives you a a vintage feel, right? International business machines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, had you ever thought about Red Sweater International? Red like, Sweater International Software Looming Industries Incorporated. Incorporated. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was uh, that at the beginning. It was honestly just. You know, I talk about this sometimes with people who are just getting started. Um, I'm sure that they can relate to it, or at least many of them can. Because when I was young, one, for one thing, younger, and for another thing, more naive about business in general, everything about the idea of starting a business just felt like a combination of um, exhilaratingly, like out of my league, and kind of like... um, uh, just uh, had this sense that, like, I don't know. Let's just let's just do this to ha- to be able to say you have a company. Almost, yeah. It's kind of cool. Like, oh, I have a company. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to have a company. Uh, nobody ever came down and anointed me as a person who's allowed to have companies. I think no matter how old you are, starting a business feels like something that grown ups should do. Right. Yeah. And and I'm st- I still struggle with this to this day when I, for example, deduct expenses from my taxes um as a software professional i am not only entitled to but encouraged to you know deduct the cost of my computer that i use to make that software and it's like this attitude of like wait a minute i wanted that computer anyway but i was gonna buy it regardless (laughs) right right exactly (laughs) you know it's like well i guess you know it must feel pretty good for uh professional tennis player to deduct the racket but um, that's just nonetheless, that's how we do it. Uh, and I've, I've had to, I, maybe struggle is too strong of a word, but I've had this uh, now over a decade of gradually coming to terms with the idea that, oh, it's okay that I have a business. Lots of people have businesses. And actually, like, you know, the guy that opened up the uh, butcher store on the corner wasn't you know he he didn't like necessarily or likely go to business school or anything he just he said i i know how to cut meat and i'm going to sell it to you and it's like oh i know how to make software and i'm going to sell it to you it's kind of like a a breakthrough for me um but needless needless to say i think um the the press and the record label <laughs> uh went dormant and were at some point just not renewed and it's the software that lives on. They are just like, do you think that they may ever um, rise like a phoenix from the flames? Are they just sitting and waiting, ready for you to release, you know, either your memoirs or a record <laughs> or something? I don't know. I think if I do get to that point where I'm going to go um, branching out like that, I will, I will go to the legal effort of changing to a more generic name so it doesn't sound silly. Um, you know, uh, an example that comes to mind is um, uh, Smile Software, right? Uh, Smile on my Mac. Mm-hmm. They ha- they are still, I believe, legally Smile on my Mac, and now they are doing business as Smile Software because at one point it became clear, oops, we picked a, a name that was too restrictive for what we want to do. Yeah. Um, we don't want to just make Mac software. Uh, on some level... You know, I don't know that I just want to make software. Um, I, I, to be honest, I already sort of faced this um, 
you know, the, the podcast that Manton and I do is from a, you know, legal income perspective, it's part of Red Sweater Software. And that doesn't make sense, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So maybe that's the Red Sweater Records coming out finally. Oh, there you uh, go. We've done yeah. it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'd like to in the future be able to say uh, if I, I... I have all these fantasies, as most people do, of like things that I want to do and probably never will. One of those is um, like a, a, a downloadable ebook that covers all of the common questions about like running a software business. That would be perfect for Red Sweater Press, but it will inevitably be sold by Red Sweater Software unless I uh, go to the trouble of changing the name. I will wait and see. With bated breath. Yes. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about Mars Edit. Um, as, as I'm starting to, to learn whilst sort of researching you and through talking to you, is that you go about things in a different way to the norm. Would that be fair to say? I mean, like, with Mars Edit, you bought it and started yeah. developing it. And, I mean, that's kind of... I mean, that, that definitely happens. But, I mean, you know, I, 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 can't, I don't know what it was like at the time, but especially not these days, individuals don't really tend to, to acquire things. It's more companies that tend to, do, uh, tend to do it. So I just wonder, what, what was the thinking that went behind it? I mean, why did you think, yeah, I will buy this app, I won't just make my own? Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's fair to say that I go about things differently than the norm as much as perhaps um over the years I have been slightly less resistant to following, you know, diverging paths that appear. So, um you know, at one point in my young life um you know, I had some relatively crappy job and a friend said, oh, you should try to get a contract job at Apple over in San Jose, you know, not San Jose, but Cupertino. Um, and I could have just kind of said, mm, I have an okay job right now and I'm, I'm young. I'm not really qualified for that job and um, they probably won't hire me and I'm kind of scared. I don't want to go to an interview. <laughs> um, but something something that I have either intrinsically or that I've developed consciously or maybe a little bit of both is a sense of um, a sense of trying different kind of pathways. You are uh, not, you are not a man who fears opportunity. I definitely fear it, but I, am <laughs> I, not, I use it anyway. <laughs> I go for it. <laughs> I'm scared of it, but I do it. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to dig up this, um, blog post I made, I think a few years ago at this point on Red Sweater blog, it's just called Say Yes. And it is a, a very short summary of the, of the philosophy that I sometimes fall back on, which I usually have to kind of like call upon when I'm feeling all that, all that fear and like, oh, the last thing I want to do is, you know, have to um, go meet people I've never met and shake their hands and be nervous and look them in the eye and explain to them why I'm better than I actually think I am, you know, but just, I'm just going to say, I'm going to do it and then do it because 
that's actually the way that things happen. So yeah. um, when the opportunity to acquire Mars Edit came up, oh, I don't know, that's risk, that's money, I have to pay for it, and then I'm going to be committed to it, and I don't know if I'm actually good at developing blogging software. And what if the customers all revolt and say, oh, we don't like you, we liked the old developer better, <laughs> and there's all these things you can talk yourself out of, um, but just somehow kind of, you know, not to say that you should do foolish things, obviously there was some some measuring the the risks and rewards, but... Um, I think that's what it comes down to. It, you know, similarly with the, uh, you touched on this earlier, but uh, I left Apple. That was something where I could have easily stayed at Apple for the rest of my life. You know, that was that's, and it's something that some people are well on their way to doing. Um, you know, I have friends there who have been there now for um, 20, 30 years. And there was something there that was like, well, this opportunity to quit Apple and go to music school is going to be scary. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have an income. But it's something that I haven't done before. I think that's part of it is like kind of growing to appreciate doing things you haven't done before. Um, this is how I got started with any public speaking at all, because that, to be honest with you, that still completely terrifies me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be actually in the UK in uh, about a month and a half speaking at the NS conference. Yes. And um, I'm like totally paralyzed with fear about that. Not as much as I might have been at one point, um, gradually loosening up that sort of uh, public speaking muscle. But the very first time I did any, any public speaking, it was, it was like that. Um, it was, it was um, I don't want to do this thing, but I'm going to say yes to doing it because I know it will make me probably a better, more rounded, more capable, not to mention more well-known when it comes to public speaking. Uh, person in the end and you know similar things go, going on podcasts with people you don't know very well yeah right uh that was a cause for great hesitation at one point and that's kind of this i think that's what it comes down to is um that say yes mentality when it comes to things that if you take a step back you can say yeah i don't want to do that but the reason i don't want to do that is because i'm afraid of something and um, then try to maybe trying to then take that fear and like methodically figure out a way to make that that fear less intimidating. So did it did it feel different like acquiring and, and working on the app rather than conceiving it and, and developing it? Because you have other applications as well that you've obviously gone down that route with. Was there a different sort of feeling there? Was it like adopting the application? Yes, uh, very very much so. Um, it it was a very much a combination of just i mean just such a blessing to have all of this work already done and then the sort of curse of i don't know how any of this stuff works so <laughs> um i don't i you know i had like that first week after i acquired after i acquired the app i i did a very quick turnaround to show the user base that i was interested in being you know, a good steward of the, of the software. You, we, you know, there's 
the, the, I think the biggest fear people have when something gets acquired is it's like that's just a code word for slowly retired. Um, yeah. And so I got a, I think I got an app update in Mars Edit out within a week after acquiring it with um, a few like real annoying bugs fixed. And I also then at that point was starting to field customer support questions from people who were asking how to do things that I didn't even know the app did. You know? <laughs> so, so it's like I'm going to have to teach myself now, one, that the app does that, two, how to do it, and three, is what this customer wants to do possible. If not, what what can I reasonably look forward to understanding about the app in the future to be able to, to fix it. So that was interesting. Uh, and not it's, you know, that in that re- respect, it's the opposite of the, the experience of building something from scratch where you might forget some of the nuances of, of what you've built, but they're sort of intrinsically all going to be the types of things that you would have decided to do. Right. So like everything in Mars edit is, when I from the day I bought it was the types of things that Brent Simmons would have decided to do, which is not to say that they are wrong at all. It's just that they're all from his mindset. So some of them happen to match the way I would have probably decided to do it. And some of them are like, wow, I never thought of programming something that way. And those are the kind of trickiest ones because you got to think, oh, do this is an interesting way of programming. Do I agree with it? Do I disagree with it? You know, should I be learning from this or should I be changing this? Um, that was kind of it's kind of the most fun too because you just you, you take ownership of this thing that has all of these characteristics that you know you 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 then have the power to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like about it, which is definitely interesting and different. So it's, it's nice to see. So I have I have some other stuff that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about. Um, sort of the state of the app stores, um, and, and you know, I want to get your thoughts on that. So, conscious of time, I want to uh, thank our sponsor, Squarespace, very quickly, and, and then we'll get to that. If if you are happy with this, sir, yes, I'm very happy with it. Excellent. So, I just want to take a, a few moments just to thank Squarespace for their support of this episode. So, Squarespace, they give you absolutely everything you need to create an amazing website, blog portfolio your home online squarespace can provide you with the tools you need to create it they offer a fully hosted completely managed environment basically what this means is they give you in one package everything you need they give you beautiful templates that have responsive web design so you don't need to employ a designer they give you a fantastic WYSIWYG design engine and they call it layout engine it's their page builder it allows you to create custom layouts for your pages in seconds you just drag and drop in blocks of content like photos videos social media stuff loads more so you can build your pages without needing a coder they give you an analytic system so you don't need to worry about installing anything like that you can see the traffic to your site they give you fantastic apps. They have Squarespace apps for iOS and Android, um, which allow you to view your stats, post on the go, so you don't need to worry about finding something in the App Store and buying it and configuring it. It's all done. It's all integrated. They also offer uh, domains. You can add your current domain that you have. If you buy one of their annual plans, you get a free custom domain name. They have 24-7 customer support, award-winning support. They have great step-by-step um, online workshops and knowledge-based stuff, tutorials, the lot. Um, couple, uh, a new thing that Squarespace have just announced. So they previously had um, 
fantastic font support. They have their own great web fonts that they've that they've implemented. They've implemented a selection of Google fonts from Google's web font library. And um, this week, they've also implemented a selection of Typekit fonts, including everybody's favorite, Proxima Nova. So, happy days. And, and you can implement these just by quite literally clicking into the design editor and selecting from a drop-down list of fonts. You have loads of... Uh, beautiful, excellent suggestions, and you can click them, and then in real time, watch the fonts update on the site, and then you can make your choices. Really awesome. I want you to go and try all this out so you can play around with it yourself and just see how it looks. I can give you a free trial to do that. Go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels at 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S. You can start your free trial there. No obligation, no credit card needed, nothing. Once you're and I'm sure you will have made the decision to purchase a plan and move or start your new site on Squarespace. They start at $10 a month for their standard plan and $20 a month for an unlimited plan. If you sign up for one year up front, as well as the custom domain name, you get 20% off that monthly price. And if you sign up front for two years, you'll get 25% off. But what's more, if you use the code 70decibels1 at checkout, you'll get an additional 10% off your first order. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. So the Mac App Store and the iOS App Store. Um, Apple have stated these, have been running for many, many years now. And it's kind of changing development. Um, I mean, obviously on iOS, it's the only way you can get your applications onto the platform. And on the Mac, um, it's not the only way, but it's becoming, for many, a preferred way. Um, Having been in the Apple industry for a long time, having worked in Apple, does do you have concerns about this? Like, do the app, does the App Store environment, I know you have your software in there, does the App Store environment and potentially restrictions that Apple place on them, does it, have, does it concern you in any way? Are you happy about it? What is your general feeling, Daniel? Well, I think that if any, any developer who has software in the App Store, the Mac App Store, or the iOS App Store, who doesn't entertain at least a small amount of concern about their helplessness um the potential potential helplessness to do anything about um an apple executive decision regarding their app then they're not thinking they're just not being pessimistic enough um so (laughs) So you 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 require the the pessimisticness of people you the pessimism you you say that it's something that people should think about Absolutely, and it's not it's not uh, unfounded pessimism in the sense that you know it, it, you know let's say it had been three or four years since any app stores had come out, um, and there had never been any cases of people putting a ton of work into an app only to have it um, you know ceremonially rejected, or that or that there hadn't been cases of app store Mac app store apps. Um, that were invited in with open arms when the app store debuted only to be essentially shown the door when new restrictions for sandboxing requirements came in. Uh, if there wasn't that history, then you might, it might be reasonable to just write off as needlessly paranoid or negative, uh, those kinds of concerns. But for, for worse or for better, Apple has, demonstrated that they don't mind breaking a few developers dreams perhaps you know most generously the most generous way to look at it is that they don't mind 
breaking a few developer dreams in order to make the overall App Store future more at least what Apple wants it to be like. Um, and so I think the realistic way to look at the app stores is you, um, I, I most certainly encourage developers to participate in the app stores because I think they're one of the best ways to make your dreams come true as far as like supporting yourself with software and selling directly to customers. Um, but you just, you have to, you have to take with that, that sort of risk that lightning may strike at any time. Uh, obviously some apps are more prone to you know being selectively hurt by by the app stores than others so i think uh, you know you can kind of look at the history of the app stores and decide for yourself how likely it is that you know maybe maybe before you put a bunch of time into uh an app that you know strong has has a strong parallel with something that apple wants to do maybe that's not maybe that's not the best use of your time um you know maybe if there's some tinge of pornography in your app idea maybe that's not the best use of your time um so all that just to say that unfortunately the app stores have not played out in a way um where it's completely obvious and predictable what kinds of software will be allowed in the long term and what kinds will not and it's really particularly problematic on the mac app store where we enjoyed a full year um of, you know, being embraced by the App Store and having certain app, certain whole classes of software embraced by the App Store that were then just not possible to continue developing and distributing through the store. I mean, you know, examples that come to mind are like um, uh, Smi- coming back to Smile Software, um, Text Expander. You know, they had uh, Text Expander three welcomed, probably featured on the App Store. Um, many times, if not, you know, at least once, I would guess, if not many times. And then when Text Expander 4 comes around, because of the, the sandboxing requirements, they were forced to pull out of the App Store. And that's the kind of bait and switch that really pisses people off. You know, that's um, whether it's justified or not for Apple to do that, it's the kind of thing that shows developers what. Apple is willing to do. They're willing to piss people off to that level to achieve some ends. So I don't know what Apple's next, you know, major policy shift is going to be or if they will have one. But, you know, little things here and there uh, are up to Apple's discretion. And if you're going to base your entire livelihood off of this sales, uh, you know, sales venue, then I think you have to be a little paranoid about it. So before the the Mac App Store, as a Mac developer, um, you could create apps however you wanted. You could take advantage of anything the Mac system could offer you, um, API-wise, and you could create your own workarounds and private APIs, etc. But now, as we've mentioned, you you have to think about Mac App Store rules and and the rules that Apple imposes if you want to submit and sell through the store. So does this affect your thinking when developing new features now? And is it, you know, is it a shock to your system at times where you're like, well, I just want to do it this way, but can't? Absolutely. Not, not to the extent uh, that it would for some software developers who are more firmly outside the, the sort of 
the walls of what uh, Apple's currently you know requiring of of Mac App Store apps, but even little things down to little things like how um how should uh a, a customer configure the app um for example it was uh sometimes possible in the past to say you know if if you put a file at this particular spot on your system then that will make the app behave in a different way. Now, that, when, I put, when I put it that way, it doesn't sound like a great way to configure an app. But, um, you know, whole there are, there are apps out there that have sort of like the way they've behaved in the past has relied upon having access to the user's disk and, you know, saying like, oh, I found... Uh, a good example, actually, is um, the iMedia framework that I use in MarsEdit that a bunch of other apps use that uh, implicitly determine by looking at the user's home folder which media apps they use and then present to the user the, the option of browsing those, those libraries. Like, uh, I see that you're using Aperture. I see that you're using iTunes. I see that you're using, um, you know, even stuff from uh, other companies like Lightroom. And um, that's the kind of stuff you have to really rethink with the new restrictions in the app store. So, um, yeah, there's, there's that level of having to rethink things. Um, but it's not nearly as, as, um, sort of intense as, like I said, something like text expander or, um, you know, apps like from my friends at rogue amoeba, where maybe they rely upon, um, you know, to like hijack an app. (laughs) It's kind of like one of those things where just the name of the app sort of sounds like something that, um, that Apple might not want in the App Store. So they either have yeah. to completely rethink the kind of software that they want to make or continue to um, sort of focus on a non-App Store uh, emphasis, you know. Indeed. So this is different, I mean, for, for iOS developers, right, because they've always worked like this. You know, They didn't have to have things change. Do you think that the mindset's slightly different for development houses that have just worked with iOS? Like, is it, is it something that they just expect? It's part of the business, part of the way the things are done? I think it's a huge difference that there has been less change over the years for iOS developers and that, and that they started out with such a relatively restricted environment. Um, and I think a lot of people on the Mac end of things, you know, maybe this is like, uh, you know, um, only in retrospect are we so generous to say this, but I think a lot of us have the feeling that if the Mac App Store had started with as great of restrictions as the iOS Store did, there wouldn't be as many kind of like, you know, bruised egos about it. Like it's the, the sense of betrayal from having the standards change and change so dramatically and change so quickly. So that's not to say that on iOS the standards haven't changed over time. Um, they're, they're more like kind of nuanced little changes, both in policy and in, um, you know, technolo- technologically what's available to apps and how, how they're expected to use um, iOS devices. But, you know, just recently I just saw, I think maybe this morning, uh, a tweet from somebody about the 500px, you know, 500 pixels. Yeah. Uh, their app had been 
I think banned from the from the uh, store or taken yeah, down from the store. There'd been concerns about um, pornography, right? Especially um, child pornography pictures oh somehow oh. finding their way into the app. Um, right, it, definitely cause for concern. So it was uh, removed. It was actually replaced today. Um, right. So that's the kind of thing, though, where um, definitely cause for concern. Uh, something needed to be figured out. But from the perspective of the 500px people, that might have been the end of their App Store career. Right. They don't. They don't know what Apple's going to decide. Uh, and it's not always going to be something even that has such a sort of like socially agreed upon good intention. Um, there was, uh, you know, every, everybody in their right mind wants to avoid child pornography coming up on people's apps. Um, but you know, there've been other policy changes like, um, a ban on apps that, uh, maybe work too closely. It are, are too similar to like an Apple app store app. Um, yeah, that's all, that's all fine and good, but the standards changed there. So apps that were for some definition of thriving or thriving, and then they were told that that's no longer acceptable. Um, this is just the reality of, and I'm not so much like whining that that shouldn't happen as much as I'm saying that that's just a, it's one of those natural, um, side effects of Apple being in charge of everything and developers having, I think developers need to come to grips with the fact that they have zero say, like they actually have zero say. It just happens that Apple's 100% say has a great overlap with what a lot of people are doing at any given time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you are primarily a Mac developer. I mean, what, do you have a, what? Do you, what are your opinions on mobile development? Do you think that? I mean, is it one something that you want to do in the future? Um, and two, do you, do you sort of do you envisage that the future of development may be all on mobile, like iPad, iPhone, and that the Mac will become less and less important? Um, a little bit of a little bit of both. Uh, I do want to do more iOS development. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by a lot of things about iOS development. Um, you know, as a longtime Mac developer, the some of the cruft that we work with and, and work within, you know, some of the architectural designs that we're stuck with, maybe slowly working out of. Uh, it's a it's it's a liberating feel to go onto iOS and have like a you know a more sane view hierarchy uh the way that like at a technical level how we program the the UI of apps on the Mac has been you know it's been clunky and we've all learned to get around with it and we have our ways of dealing with it but iOS was definitely a step forward in that respect um so I'm excited on the technological level. I'm also excited by iOS um, because I'm one of those kinds of people who enjoys constraints. And so to some extent, having fewer options about um, just, just you know, from the, from the start, you have no choice about how big the screen is, you yeah. know. Um, and on the Mac, given the wide variety of screens, um, Sure, you could choose to just always be full screen, but that's probably not a good choice either. Uh, you you have to decide whether your app is 
how big your app's window is going to be, um, whether your app's going to have more than one window, uh, how the windows in your app are going to interact. Are they going to be draggable into each other and out of each other? And while I really like it when an app on the Mac handles that really well, I also really like the idea of this predictable um, screen, this predictable set of screen sizes and screen dimensions that all software has to sort of fall into. So I'm, I, I'm looking forward to those aspects of so-called mobile development. Um, sometimes those constraints can actually lead to even more creative development content. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing that, you know, if you listen to any designers uh, of any, you know, any high reputation, they almost always come back to this, like designing within constraints is a great, you know, sort of magnifies your creative output in some regards because it focuses where you have to put your creative iterations. Um, you, You can't go all over the map. And I think that helps a lot in programming as well. I mean, just down to the point that it would be a it would be a huge mess if I were to develop Mars Edit using ten different programming languages. You know, just to say, like, just for fun, I'm going to use PHP, Objective C, C, C plus plus, COBOL, JavaScript, all these other languages, just because uh, they all have their relative merits. But like the constraint of having to have everything under this one architectural design this umbrella of design is what allows you then to like actually hunker down and do the work and to do it creatively in a way that works um i wanted to get back quickly though to the 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 question another part of your question was essentially that that you know is the is the future in mobile so-called mobile i would say or is the future in you know what is the in, in short what is the future of the mac is it going to be sort of subsumed by mobile i think that's what you were getting at yeah um and i'm very pragmatic about this i think first of all mobile is a very interesting term because we have been in the mobile computing (laughs) world since we got our first laptops i mean yeah and we are calling mobile something else now but it really it means what people are calling mobile now means touch screens and very small form factors, hyper portability. Um, so I don't think, I do think that's going to be huge going forward. I don't really see it as like necessarily something where we're going to have one or we're going to have the other. I guess I take the, 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 um, the, um, the attitude that, keyboards of some kind are probably going to continue being interesting to people but uh, and, and mouses are going to be interesting to some people um we see it right now with the so-called mobile devices that have you know like like the surface with a flip uh, flip down keyboard um it has a lot of similarities to a laptop and i guess for all these reasons that you see mobile devices trying to be more like desktop machines and in some respects you see desktop machines trying to be more like mobile devices um i don't i don't see them as like one winning and the other losing i see i think i see more of a um more of a combination of products in the future that have learned from 
the advantages of the other style to the extent that they need to, you know? Indeed. So, so I don't know if we'll be using, uh, I don't know if in, in five years I will be programming. If Let's assume in five years I'm programming for Apple products. I don't know if I'm going to be using programming a so-called iOS app or a so-called Mac app. I, I, I see... I do see some continued differentiation based on the devices, but um, I think maybe what we'll see is that the differences in programming for those uh, devices is less and less. We see that from Apple now. They bring new technologies to the phone, to the iPad from, uh, from the Mac, and then the other way around, they're bringing some of that view hierarchy stuff that I was talking about. Uh, some of the niceness of programming for iOS they're bringing back to the Mac. So I think I see it more as a sort of settling out of um, of the discrepancies going forward. So last question, I'll let you go. Um, are we going to see Mars Edit for iOS at some point, do you think? I definitely think so, because it would be a shame to um, talk about doing it for so long and put so much work into it and never end up actually finishing it. Um, it's a situation where I've actually got somebody uh, coming on board to help me out with that because, you know, you alluded to, um, you know, how interested am I in, like, iOS development. I am very interested, but I have this problem that I'm one person who is also trying to keep the... Um, you know, the flagship product now, as it, as it happens, the Mac version of Mars Edit, keep it, you know, in some kind of active development. And it's just, it's been really hard to find a way to, I, I, I've seen other developers who have popular Mac apps regret going too deeply into iOS and then their Mac app suffers because some of the, one of the things that hasn't been really worked out yet, I don't think, is how to make iOS as viable for, um, you know, economically viable for the sort of non-hit, you know, non-like pop chart style software. Yeah. Um, and the Omni Group, I think, is a good model for how that could work. But the fact of the matter is that they lean heavily on their Mac um, reputation. Yeah, their prices are a lot higher, aren't they? They, they sell iOS software at Mac prices. Right, but they don't sell iOS software at their Mac prices. No, they so, don't. They, that's so, very true. And it's interesting that they concede a dramatic discount on the iOS products. Um, I don't think anybody really understands why iOS products are or why they should be so much cheaper, except that there's just something about the feel of smaller devices, more uh, laser focused in some of the apps of like what they do. I think and it was then just sort of- like a a situation that the development community got itself into. Yeah. Because when the the App Store debuted, apps were like five, ten, fifteen dollars. And then right. as time went on, because obviously there were these cheap Price off, you know, price options. Um, people just started doing it, thinking they'd make it up in volume. And the more people that did that, it then just became expected. And then that was that's a problem. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because I, you know, I do think it can something where you can sort of defy defy that wisdom and 
and make a good amount of money, like, you know, charging $10, $20 for an app. But there are some sort of systematic problems still in the app store. Like, um, this comes down to like, okay, well, there's systematic problems in the app store. I'm alluding to, for example, the lack of trial evaluations. Mm-hmm. Um, you can whine about that and like, oh, I, could, I, I would be able to sell Mars Edit for $20 if I could only do a trial version. Probably the realistic thing to do, though, is just to accept that that's not Apple's way of doing it. Uh, you know, I could say I accept that and then tomorrow they surprise me and start offering it. But, you know, from all, all we can see, they're not going to do that. So I think... Um, you have to find just like ways of make uh, ways of making up that shortcoming, and you know some people do that by the freemium model, where you you know get a free download and pay for pay for features. Um, some people do it by like Omni Group does by leaning on their strong reputation, and as they should. Uh, other folks try to give users a sense of how it will work by you know showing extensive videos. Um, all of that stuff can kind of help bring the price back up, I think, on the store. But, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I think that uh, longer term, there could be some systematic changes in the store that would help encourage software being sold at a higher price. But I'm not really sure Apple cares about that. So that's, again, sort of a conundrum. We will see. Anyway, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. A very very interesting discussion, indeed. So why don't you tell people, tell our listeners, what, where's the best places to find you on the internet? Oh well, the the place to start probably is Twitter. I'm Daniel Punkass there. You can find um, links to my other stuff if you follow the tree, sort of from that point. Um, I have a software company, as we've mentioned, Red Sweater Software, which is at red-sweater.com. Um, and I have recently started blogging separate from my company at bitsplitting.org. Um, it's kind of an idea of getting, giving myself a little permission to blog about things that aren't necessarily so appropriate for, you know, a a business website. And, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I have a podcast of my own that is not too technical. Usually it's on the, uh, the subject of kind of the, the, the things we run into my friend Banton and I trying to run these small indie software companies. It's called Core Intuition, and you can check that out at coreint.org. Excellent stuff. Busy man. Many fingers in many pies. That's right. Yeah, well, like I said, that's that, that's that uh, deadly say yes philosophy coming back to haunt me. <laughs> so next week's episode, as I mentioned, is going to feature Mr. John Roderick of The Long Winters and Roderick on the Line. So I hope that you enjoy that episode very much. You can find me um, online. I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, on your social media services. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. And until next time, bye-bye.